How many of these have we done now? Uh, this will be our 39th and 38th and 39th. That's actually less than I would have expected. Mm. I feel like we I feel like we've really done a lot of this. But maybe uh, yeah. but not no, in a weary I, I mean, way. Just in a I feel like we've done we it a lot. We take breaks every now and then because of the research. Sure, but like sure. ultimately we want we sometimes run two of these a month. I don't know. I don't know. We got a lot of shows. We do have a Small lot of shows. We do has a lot of shows. That's true. We do have a lot of shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What I think my favorite thing about this show is that I end up watching between five and ten movies a month at least to get an idea. Aside from Absolutely. like stuff I want to watch, like yes. it's also like oh, that's a, that was kind of a hit movie that maybe I've never seen or I have seen but not for a long time. You know, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I really watch like more that. movies. Yeah, exactly. Which I I I need reasons to do that actually, because uh, it'd be easier for me to not do, like play video games or whatever the fuck else. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just jack off. <laughs> just constantly. You know how many hours like, of that I'd be doing if it wasn't for this like show? Like eighteen hours a day. Easily. Yeah. I'd never be employable. Yeah. This show keeps mm-hmm. me employable. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Support small beans. It keeps Adam from jacking off. Keep all me day. from. From destroying myself with too much semen. Uh, by the way, I like watched the fucking Bone Collector the other day. Just like threw the Bone, the collector, bone collector in front of my eyes. Yeah, that's amazing. That's one. Tell me about. Tell me about your experience. I couldn't. With the bone collector. I couldn't because it did not capture me. <laughs> it did not capture me at all. <laughs> just completely dumbfounded by the it. movie. Like it, two hours of you, yeah. just like oh, I can't take it. It's the Bone Collector. It was. He was aggressively neutral for me. Yeah, and I, I just those. didn't. It just didn't make an impression, you know. I was like, man, man, you know? song is old as time, man. That I I don't know how many neutral or let's call them what they are, mediocre films. Mediocre, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Like I watched too many. I watched too many in the hopes of yeah <laughs> of that that yeah that we'd uh, we'd find something, we'd some find a gem of wisdom, totally some kernel wisdom to bring you to <gasps> the show, which is <laughs> this show. Director Peace Theater, mm. where we talk about directing. We sure I do. Guess, yeah, we and do. movies. Yeah, you know, directors. You know, they make movies. <laughs> you you get the gist. This is the level of I'm, analysis we're bringing you here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing the connections for y'all. I'm Abe Epperson, mm. uh, but this isn't my episode. Introduce yourself, persons whose it is. Thank you. I am the person whose episode it is. Adam Ganser, co-host, friend extraordinaire of uh, my dear Abe, who's beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. thank you for the years of friendship that brought us to this point. Mm. Mm. <laughs> what are we talking about? I don't know. Uh, I no, no. I mean, like, to literally. oh, today. <laughs> <laughs> you thought uh, that your profession of heartfelt like camaraderie and brotherhood that right I was out. just throwing it out. No, I was yes, Andy. I see. Moving on because That's it's beautiful, good. and yeah. I didn't want to. I didn't want to ruin it, and no. I did. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you want right. to know before I get into Thomas Crown Affair, which is the movie we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I just want is. you to know I have watched no less than six Julia Roberts movies, desperately hoping to find one that's like <laughs> we're gonna get it. I like today it's gonna be pr- <laughs> it's gonna be my best friend's wedding, and we're gonna fucking do it. And it never sticks, fucking, man. Yeah, never sticks. She, she is elusive yeah, with her bad. She really movies. is. Yeah, and obvious with her very good ones. I'm not saying yeah. she's bad or yeah. picks bad movies. I'm just saying that. Everyone knows the good movies that she's been in. It's true. And we I feel like we forget how big of a deal she was like our entire childhood. Would you cover Aaron Brockovich in this? Is no, this a, it was up for Best Picture. Piece? 
It was up for yeah, Best Picture. That's right. And that's Best right. Director. That's right. Yeah. And it's but... good. It's like a really good movie. You know? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, it is. It's a really good movie. No, I, like I'm thinking for her, it's like it's Notting Hill or it's like, you know, maybe even yeah, Pelican it's Brief. Like a... American Sweethearts. Yeah. Remember that? I don't like that movie, but yeah. Or Stepmom. <laughs> you know, Stepmom has some Never potential. saw Stepmom. That one didn't get me. Uh, yeah. I, 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 we'll see. I'm going to find a Julia Roberts movie one of these days. You'll find one. I'll find it. Yeah, yeah. of course I will. Uh, anyway, the but that's whale. not today. Today we're talking about, I think, a fairly beloved movie. Thomas I think Crown no Affair. one remembers this at all. Oh, I interesting. Past an age of, like, if you are 25 right now, this is not nonsense. This is like That's a fair. nonsense movie. That's fair. Like, yeah. 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 It doesn't, it's, it's definitely time bound in a way. Uh, I feel like at the time though, there was a lot of hype about it. Maybe because people love the original. Uh, I, uh, I assume. No, it was Pierce, baby. Yeah, it was, it was Pierce. Pierce Brosnan, right, right, right. Rene Russo. Right. Doing art heists. You go right. like, hell yeah. Right. Uh, That's right. Pierce Brosnan was on top of the world. Yes, he was. Right off Goldeneye. He did this. Mm. Uh, mm. Yes. And it was actually... It was right off. Uh, it was. was it, it was like his next project because it took him a few years to get it done, I think. Uh, oh, like it released late, much later yeah, like I shot kind of deal? I think they yeah, were part for the course on for it. McTiernan. Yeah, I think he was working on it for like four or five years, I think. Yeah, because GoldenEye is 95 and I believe this is 99. Nine. 99? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I think Dante's Peak came out maybe before this, so maybe it's... They're concurrent. Yeah, Dante's Peak. Yeah. Ooh, that's another one that we could do one day. Uh, yeah. But the reason we're here is not explicitly to talk about Pierce Brosnan. It's actually to talk about John McTiernan, uh, who I think it's safe to say is Abe's special boy. Uh, right? He's a special boy for Abe. He's he's one of them. I yeah. have so many special boys yeah, and you gals. Do. But like, look. But you love him. There's something about John McTiernan's movies. There the is. The man created Die Hard. Let's... Let's. I'm saluting him right now. I am literally <laughs> saluting. As you should. I actually think, uh, and this is sort of like how I wrote this outline that we're going off of today. But like, I think John McTiernan should be more of a household name than he is. Yeah. Uh, he has. He is like the voice behind. I would say three of the most important action franchises in cinema history. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like they were also, by the way, his first three motion pictures. He just kept hitting home runs. Predator, if, yeah, yeah. yeah. To... If you don't include uh, Nomad, which is a movie that he made <laughs> and like an indie thriller that kind of got him on the map, you know, fucking Nomad. Yeah, Nomad. Yeah, no yeah. yeah. Uh, it does matter for this movie actually because Nomad stars Pierce Brosnan of Remington yes, Steel. Yes, it film. does. Yes, it does. Uh, anyway, his first movie after that was Predator, <laughs> which is like mm-hmm. wow. Uh, yeah, what a what a announcement that hey, I'm here, motherfuckers. His second mm-hmm. movie was Die Hard. Uh, yeah, yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> and his third movie, uh, you could argue, is kind of every bit as important as those other two. Uh, it's The Hunt for Red October, the which Hunt is the first of the Jack Ryan franchise? stories. Oh, Jack Ryan, of course. Yeah, I totally like separate those two in my brain. I mean, of course, right. yeah, right. Absolutely. That man. Oh, it's perfect. Oh, I love this. He is the most boomer. <laughs> he really is. Fucking director. Ever. I mean, uh, like, yeah, he is the boomer. But I yeah, mean, he like, is. Yeah. he is like Jack Ryan is the per. Of course, he that franchise, he like 
began. Because Jack Ryan is the most boomer shit I've ever seen. Well, and it's also, it is, and it's also like looking up to the generation before the boomers, which is mm-hmm. a, one of their mm-hmm. chief characteristics. Like they revere yeah. their parents, uh, mm-hmm. which a, tra- a, a trait our generation does not share. <laughs> we'll put well, it they're that not way. The wor- they're not the greatest generation. <laughs> you know, That's right. Not- That's exactly yeah. it. So I guess the point I wanted to make about sort of listing his first three films is like, uh, that's better than almost every director's entire career. Any of those three mm. movies is better than Jesus. Yeah. almost any director's entire career. Like, if you made one of those, you're pretty much halfway to George Lucas or Peter Jackson. You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I think Peter Jackson is in a he's better different category. I agree. But George Lucas, uh, yeah, <laughs> Howard the Duck, much? He's got <laughs> two, baby. No, yeah, no, no. That's right. Like, because most people have one. One great execution, or like a, a catalog of execution, but like one great idea, one right. thing to tie right. uh, themselves to. And, he has three. And he's he's just like, uh, yeah, Bob and Weave, baby, I'm just making hits. Well, and he, it seems to me from just looking at his catalog, like I didn't get a strong sense of how he felt about his work <clears throat> in my research, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, looking at his catalog, he seemed pretty resistant to like franchising stuff. Like, he wasn't a part mm-hmm. of Die Hard 2. He wasn't a part of any of the Predator sequels. He wasn't a part mm-hmm. of, like, any of the Jack Ryan stuff. Uh, and he seemed to kind of w- only want to do original IPs, which, hey, man, salute that. I think that's pretty cool. Um, right yeah, I think that's a true director. Like, somebody who's like, I don't want to keep doing it. I want to make the one that I love and move on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a director sentiment that... I think most directors, even like a James Gunn type, I think probably feels like that in his heart somewhere, you know, even though I think that, yeah, making money yeah, is good. Yeah, I think it's funny. I think Orson Welles said something similar because uh, there's been, he just had a birthday before we recorded sure. this and there was a lot of people bringing up his old quotes because he's full of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, he was talking about how like, I don't know, I don't want to digress it too much, but a sense of ignorance is like how he really wants to approach a movie because if the second that you know too much about a topic, you are now too, uh, you, 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 you become timid because yes. you know of all the, yes. the, the, the scaffolding at which is necessary to stand to be able to be respected in that yep. uh, particular field. And <clears throat> I get the feeling that McTiernan, like a lot of great directors, like Orson Welles as well, uh, very jack-of-all-trades kind of, Vibe. I think so too. I think um, he also has kind of a an accessible sensibility, which is a thing that we're going to come back right. to. It, that doesn't mean that he's uh, Hollywood. Th- no, no. Studio. It doesn't mean that he. It also doesn't mean that he's um, pre- like uh, like a blue collar type guy. That's not what I mean by that. He's very artistic, mm-hmm. uh, but in ways that don't feel artistic. You know, like his artistry is very much uh, <sighs> sort of invisible yeah. to the audience's eye. I would say. It's perfect. He's yeah. the perfect director. Well, he's a perfect Abe director because Abe is yeah, Abe is right. famous. <laughs> Abe is famous for saying at Cracked, we used to have this debate all the time. He would say, uh, you know, that a perfect director is transparent. You mm-hmm. know, a, a a person who makes movies where you don't sense that they are there. A thing that I've grown mm-hmm. to appreciate as I've gotten older. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also mm-hmm. love me the Tarantinos of the world who are like, no, no, yeah, look yeah, at me, motherfucker. Loud- you know the loud assholes yeah. who make the world talk about them. That's right. You know, they, I, and they guide the conversation. The Edgar Wrights, if you will. Uh, you know, and I I appreciate those anyway. So mm-hmm. McTiernan falls probably closer on the spectrum to Transparent as a filmmaker, which we'll talk about. Yeah. But um, in 1999, 
McTiernan, believe it or not, even with all that success, was kind of on shaky ground, uh, especially critically, because he'd made three movies that just didn't perform. And when I list the movies, you'll be surprised that people felt this way about it, but they did. Uh, the first of them was Medicine Man, which was, you know, a, a, I think still kind of an above average movie. It's fine. Um, but it didn't perform very well. It was kind of panned by critics. Last Action Hero, which has become kind of a cult classic, um, was panned initially by critics. They really didn't like it, um, which I find very surprising. But uh, and it also didn't perform well in the box office. So uh, he was maybe ahead of the audience at that point. And then um, even... I think so, yeah. I know, it's such a good movie. It's so weird. I mean, what? it's actually not that... Here's my thought on Outlast Action Great. Hero. It's not actually that great in terms of the meta conversation, but you look at the meta conversations we're having now, mm-hmm. like Last Action Hero was a way ahead of its yes, time. Yes, it was. Like if the, he And it also would be a lot more playful and less reserved were it to be made now. You couldn't make Last Action Hero now only because like you'd have to update it to such an extent that it's just like we have multiverses. We have, right. you know, That's fucking right. Marvel is doing, like, blows up their timeline every f- phase. So it's like the normal ad hoc movie where meta is being involved. Last Action Hero is barely touching the surface, but back then it was like, what the fuck? Yeah, are way we ahead watching? of time. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I think that uh, it's still a little bit notable in that it, dares to integrate the like real Hollywood uh, yeah, and I, like real life into the story, like, and dares to demand that, you know, things about real life Hollywood to understand the movie. Um, yeah. And that's interesting, but uh, hardly, you know, hardly the first or last that's done that, but still kind of people kind of missed that one. Um, and even you'll be surprised to hear this. Probably die hard with a vengeance was not met. Well, uh, in terms of public opinion, even though it made a lot of money, um, people. I don't didn't think any like Die Hard was Die Hard two even. I think after that's what happens in franchises where yeah. like your first one is so undeniably classic. But what are you gonna do? Right. What are you gonna, are you do, you gonna do for gonna a do? sequel? I know that Temple of Doom, which was probably right, uh, also got that guff, and Last Crusade also got that guff. And it, for me, those are both much worse than Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Like, I think they are. I, mean, I think but, the third yeah, one's pretty with good. With a Vengeance. Yeah. With a Vengeance is a really fun movie. It is very fun. Um, I like that movie. I don't love it, but I like it. It's definitely not Die Hard. I mean, Die Hard is uh, a template from which all action movies spring. That's how good it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it says something that he even at that point went back to direct a Die Hard. You know, like, I think he was already kind of feeling the pressure to make something successful, uh, you know, because you get used to making hits and then suddenly, you know, the the blessing wind departs and you're like, oh, no, now what? Uh, and that's kind of where he was in 1999. Mm-hmm. So he kind of after Die Hard with a Vengeance, he basically took like four years off and he made two projects and you will laugh mm-hmm. at what they both were. <laughs> the first one is. Well, I know one of them is this. Yeah, one, one of them is this one. Uh, which is uh, in some ways not a very McTiernan idea, but we'll get to that. Not well, the other one is Thirteenth Warrior, <laughs> which hell, oh hell yeah, Thirteenth Warrior, yeah. which I think is fair hell to describe yeah. as a a loose a loose retelling of Beowulf, B terrible, <laughs> and C a movie that does seem like McTiernan could make it. Like on paper, it's like oh yeah, he could make that movie, right? That seems what right. if I <laughs> you gonna tell me it's good? Right, Are you gonna so, tell me it's good? No, no, I, I I remember when I was in college, I had a, a 
long conversation at a party. Uh, this is the kind of parties I went to mm. where we talk 13th Warrior. Mm. So, you know, real cool people. People that Very cool. single out in the crowd and go, that guy doesn't talk about 13th Warrior at a party. <laughs> uh, no, no, we did. And um, what if I told, what if I asked the question, rewatch or like rewatch 13th Warrior? It's been a while. I'll give you that. All right. Okay. And uh, conceive of it as mctiernan's love song to igmar bergman oh boy it completely oh boy. rechanges everything because it's from it's it's all about perspective which we'll get into we'll get into an on my director piece that's, that's fair. 13th order i'll probably talk about it. that's so that's like for you because most people don't know bergman i love really, bergman but like yeah he was like always you know fucking you know peasants cutting potatoes and shit like that's what he wanted to tell this famous epic in a small, small stakes way where it's just like there are invaders. That's all you know. Um, anyway, I appreciate anyway. that. I, I appreciate creative readings of movies, uh, especially when they're. Doesn't mean when, they're good. Well, yeah. uh, sometimes when we really missed it, uh, it could mean that, but that's very unusual. Um, I do not think McTiernan is like, if you just think about Ignar, Igmar right, Bergman, right. you'll enjoy right, the right. movie. 13 <laughs> Obviously, it's off note. Fair enough. Because it is pretty terrible. Well, you know, we all have our passion projects. Sort of uh, mm-hmm. doing the... Sorry. Do, no, no. Doing the Charlie Day string theory thing with 13th Warrior is pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I think that the public, though, <gasps> perceives that as not a great film. Um, no. The other that he made is Thomas Crown Affair. And... Mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say this is a, a movie that's really a love story that's sort of wrapped in a heist movie and not the other way around. Yeah. Another thing, another movie that doesn't look like is not what you think is promised. Because you yes, think, absolutely. Fucking James Bond. Right. Fucking Art Thief. Right. Rene Russo is there trying to catch him. This is going to be great. Right. It seems you watch it. very cat and mouse and like there's going to be action centerpieces and stuff and. Uh, it, it's not. It's a love story. And furthermore, and this is also interesting for McTiernan at this point, it's a remake of a movie that was yeah. fairly well known and somewhat Which beloved. Much, yeah, much more clearly that as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's very much aware of the previous film, which is uh, 1968's Thomas Crown Affair with Steve McQueen, of course, who's uh, such an icon. So that's i mean i just think it's interesting that at this point in his career these are the two films he tries to do one of them is a very mctiernan-y premise or at least one that fits Mm -hmm. his previous canon and the other one isn't and uh thomas crown affair the one that isn't sort of ends up being uh up to this point mctiernan's last good film and kind of his artistic swan song um you know Mm -hmm. unless he comes out of retirement makes a movie and let's all hope that he does because you know uh he's made a lot of great films that is but it, that you might be right about. I this. know because after this, he made Rollerball in 2002, and he got into mm-hmm. a bunch of legal trouble with Rollerball. He was like taping yeah, his right. producer, and it, it went real quick. Yeah. And he, then he went to jail, uh, the, and then it was Basic. Yeah, and then hasn't made a motion pictures in 14 years. Yeah, he made Basic, which was horrible. Uh, yeah. And he hadn't made a he hasn't made a movie in 15 years. I mean, at that point, it was like I think. I just want to make money from because he the had institution. to. I know right. how to make money out of. Um, that's what why Rollerball and Basic are both I agree. Like more high concept and like look at the Flash. Look at the everyone's into this bullshit. So let's do this bullshit, I, which is lazy way of making movies. So and shame on you. I agree. Well, shame in the sense that 
it's not why you should make movies. Uh, it's but it's a reason mm-hmm. that you can that a lot of movies get made. So you know, like and Lord knows if we're lucky enough to make movies, Abe. Later in our lives, we may end up facing these choices, and I don't want to condemn them too hard now. I also I also think that he's probably old, and he was just like, "Who gives a shit?" And that's an affectation of becoming old. Yeah, I mean that's uh, exactly it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but interestingly, this film is sort of kind of his swan song, and. Uh, despite how I sort of set it up as this weird left turn in his career uh, that's sort of coming in the twilight, I think it's actually a really great vehicle to show what makes McTiernan such a great filmmaker. Um, Because I think that this film shows in a broad way how a director's choices can affect the sensibility of a film and make it entertaining and engaging or not. Um, And... I think that McTiernan also knew that this film was uh, memorable and meant something because when he went to jail, he wrote a script for a sequel to this. Uh, so, and that was like 15 years later. So he clearly mm. was passionate about this project and had some mm. faith in it uh, and sees more story to tell here. Uh, mm. Whether that movie will ever happen, who can say? I hope it does just because, you know, I still root for the guy not being invested in his crimes. Um, but, uh, I do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, like what, what is Thomas crown? Like as a character, he kind of represents in the zeitgeist. If you had everything, what do you really that's want? That's exactly it. That's, that's his yeah. dilemma. Uh, as a, as a person is sort of like, what do you, what do you get the man who has everything, which, you know, deems numerous sequels, you know, not sure. necessarily of this brand of that's been covered in other movies, but like, um, it's definitely what this movie is about. It asks, gun to your head, Thomas Crown. Yeah, what's do, it about? What do you do? You want a fulfilling life, or do you want a life where you are on? You have f- f- fucking done everything. You know, well, it's like the uh, talented Mr. Ripley's. And that's whatnot. true. God, these are all old films, by but the they're way. all they're ancient, contemporary. Uh, which is partly why you remember <laughs> them. You know what I mean? Like they're all contemporaries of each other. Yes, and they were so well advertised. So like memorably advertised that you remember the premise of them. Um, I think that says something about like, because frankly, the question that you put out there is what they would have advertised with. And yet it's not really the most important question of Thomas Crown Affair at all. Um, And the movie knows that, by the way, this is so that that question exists in the script, but it's definitely uh, moved to one side. And you're going to see why in a second. So. Um, the first thing that we should say about John McTiernan in his role here on this film is he was the first choice of the people producing the film. Um, it was mostly being driven by Pierce Brosnan, who, remember, as we said, is coming off of GoldenEye fame and, uh, I guess, Dante's peak fame. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, he's got two big hits, you know, and he's, he's James Bond, right? And we're, James Bond gets at least three movies before we're done with him, you know what I mean? So he's mm-hmm. riding very high. GoldenEye was a great film for James Bond. And um, he wanted McTiernan. That was his number one choice. Uh, McTiernan initially wasn't available. They tried a bunch of other directors, but as soon as McTiernan became available again, they were like, nope, it's got to be McTiernan. Um, And I think that tells us a few things about uh, McTiernan. One is that his actors like him. Um, And in fact, a lot of his jobs came from actors. Like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, purposefully picked him out based on his work in Nomads. Uh, for Predator, you know, so he seems to he seems to not be like a total prick to work with, despite well, his later crimes. 
watch him in interview. I know every like you think of directors in interview, you can think of like how the reservedness of Christopher Nolan or the you know kind of trolling of David Fincher no or the right. bombastic aspect of t- Quentin Tarantino. McTiernan is just fucking real. Yeah. He just cuts right to the core yes. and I think a lot of people especially actors whose job is to mimic life, you know, like that really appeals to him. And so he's like an actor's director. I and think. that's a, that's a great observation. Cause I would say that quality carries in his decision-making here too. Like the re like his, his sort of dogged reality, you know what I mean? And, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't mean that like, I guess authenticity is maybe a better word. You know, he's very authentic. Mm. Um, but it's worth saying that again, even if Pierce Brosnan liked working with this guy, when he, when you're James Bond and you have a project like this, you can take you can pick who you want to direct it, and it's not like John McTiernan's the only guy in town. You know, he could have had his pick of literally anybody. He could have picked the guy who did uh, Goldeneye, who was also successful at the time, or any number of other directors. I just think that says a lot about McTiernan's talent that Pierce Brosnan wanted to work with him again. Um, and McTiernan, when he joined, had a few conditions, and you're going to be fascinated by what they are. The first is he had to change the script, and uh, he made several very substantial changes. Here's the first one, and I think it's the most important. Um, he took the heist, uh, which was written, I, I, from what I understand, was written to sort of be similar to the original Thomas Crown Affair heist, with uh, where he hires some gunmen to hold up a bank. And he's like, yeah, it's just a generic, yeah, it's a bank, bank heist. Robbery. And he's like, no, we're not doing that. He is going to, he will never use a weapon. And he's going to steal art, not money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that choice tells you right away how much better McTiernan understood this project than a lot of directors probably would have. It It's kind of an improvement on the original, to be yeah. honest, who is more of just like someone who's moonlighting as a criminal uh, because they have everything. This is a man who specifically does it in circles of refined taste because he kind of hates that system. He hates, he yes, loathes that's right. rich people. This, yeah. That's correct. A thing that we're going to come back to several times. You said it so perfectly. He doesn't really like rich life. He doesn't like the isolation mm-hmm. of rich life. And he doesn't see it as an institution to be honored or participated in, but one to be sort of like uh, flouted. Um, yeah. Because yeah. as as a character says later in the film, uh, you know, he's stealing something that's basically only valuable to a couple of rich people, you know, like, and that line is literally in the movie. And I think that tells you how McTiernan going to talk about the golf sequence, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's it's what a the little hell meta- else we it's got a little to metaphor. do. It's a little metaphor. Well, he's got so many, there's so many in this movie, like they're very painstaking yeah, yeah, yeah. in how they set him up. But that choice, I know it sounds like, you know, kind of obvious. I don't know if it is that obvious. There's a lot of directors who would have got swept up in showing the rich life because there's a lot of that in the script. And McTiernan understood immediately, like, that's going to kill this movie. It will never be fun if this guy uh, is stealing from actual people. He's got to be stealing from somebody who doesn't matter. These are fine houses. He's just living in it. Right. You know, the feeling of ownership is beyond him because he's so fucking rich. He's like, I don't. Sure. Whatever. This is just where I want to go. Yes. Now, as part of that heist, uh, he also so he sort of reconceived how the first piece of art is stolen 
And part of that was that he wrote in this Trojan horse concept with the hired guns. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty on the nose. It's amazing. It? Like, and uh, and of course the thermal cameras and stuff. So it's like, mm-hmm. look, you know, he is John McTiernan. <laughs> He's still doing John <laughs> yeah, the McTiernan. thermal cameras. <laughs> He's got to have this thermal cameras, baby. <laughs> He's still doing a McTiernan joint here. Let's be honest. <laughs> Down Periscope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did that line not yeah, make that's... it? Uh, yeah, exactly. So you know he's he's adding some stuff that's very much of his wheelhouse, uh, but I think the the story decision here very smart. Now another thing that he added uh, is that the there was a polo match that was written into the script uh, that was uh, again a repetition of what was in the original. Like there apparently had a polo match in this movie, which I have only seen once years and years ago, so I don't totally remember it. But he replaced that sequence with a catamaran race. And that had two sort of really smart advantages. One is that the catamaran race is really breathtaking. Um, it's pretty. It's yeah. it's pretty, but it's also it's very intense. You know, it's yeah. it's not intense like thrill ride intense. It's intense like my god, like I mean, he's he's basically doing like an ollie. You know? <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's it's so cool because that decision I think heightens thematically how bored. Uh, Thomas Crown really is, you know what I mean? So like that is a better out, like better thematically for what this story is about, like you said. And also it was a decision that allowed Pierce Brosnan to do his own stunts, you know, like, cause he was able to, yeah. And so like, this is a director who that's a, that's an intensely practical decision, but it really enhanced the film in every way, thematically, narratively, and visually that one choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, those kind of things often just sort of go by unnoticed by the movie public because they don't know who made what decision. Is Pierce Brosnan like good at boats? I guess. Is he a? I, I guess. I mean, he's doing it. I, I mean, guess. yeah. I yeah. I'm guessing that he must have known that Pierce Brosnan that was a hobby of his. Uh, okay. It, okay. I'm sure that yeah. was part of what motivated it. And I think you know. So again, as every director must do, he's kind of using the resources he has. You know, he has Pierce Brosnan, and he has Pierce Brosnan's ability to navigate a boat. And uh, Dude, he did that. Yeah. No, no. I love how you're connecting dots, but I just want to point out this is exactly what I mean when I say boomer ass movie. Totally. Because it's like these rich ass motherfuckers talking about like, woe is me. These are the complexities of being rich. You know, a hundred percent. That's what. That's kind of what it's about. You know. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, continue. I don't mean no. to take that. Like that doesn't mean that these aren't legit. They are. It does mean that they're not super legitimate, but it doesn't mean that they aren't well thought out and connect the dots very beautifully in a way that we don't see it's a, uh, typically. It's a good choice for the director of this movie to make. Uh, I right. agree that, I mean, if you take three steps back and put this movie in 2022, like this man gets guillotined quickly. I mean, <laughs> right. Like, you know, so we, we wouldn't have anywhere near the patience for what he is uh in this time and you know that's why this movie doesn't exist like wouldn't get made right now but richest man just bought twitter no one's getting guillotined fair enough but but they should but we wouldn't root for him (laughs) i think is is we wouldn't root for him but again i think we wouldn't care for this movie that's right although we love batmans we love that's because don't get me started i'm i'm getting ahead of myself i'm sorry no that's a there is a what do we need from a rich guy to like him in a movie conversation that's a complete that's a completely valid conversation for a director to have because uh, yes. they have to figure that shit out all the time. Um, uh-huh. I think McTiernan was a little ahead of the, his time. I mean, and by his time, I mean that era. 
by understanding, let's not make it really cool how rich he is and do the entourage version of this guy. You That's know, true. let's do a version yeah. where he uh, he's a thrill seeker because he's bored. And I think that's a more relatable problem. Um, yeah. So I think the, the net result of this again, and this stuff all translates in our lizard brain in a way that, you know, you, by sort of he eliminates obstacles to like his character because Thomas Crown never puts somebody innocent in danger. You know, uh, that's important. Mm. And number two, I mean, in the in his heist and stuff, like if you want to talk about how he runs his business, okay, sure. But that's not really the scope of the movie. Um, right. He's doing, he's not really even stealing anything. He's doing harmless, weaponless art yeah. borrows. Like that's he's, what he's doing. Yeah, I got away with it. Right. You know, it's, uh, yeah, Ocean's Eleven kind of talked about this as well. You know, right. Like there's, I think, or Ocean's Twelve or whatever. The whole idea of just like the thrill of the steal. Right. <laughs> that's the fun of it. It's, I assume people who are really good at burgling would have that I, I mean if they're if they are like cat burglars style people like he has to be like think of the shape he's got to right. be in to do this uh i yeah. think yeah it is about him laughing at his desk with a glass of wine being like i got it that, that really is what it is you know which is why he returned it a week and a half later you know before even yeah. anybody was even on to him it's like okay you know i stole it now i'm putting it back and it's fun for me to play around with uh, society's rules that's the whole idea right um, which at the end of the day, when you realize what he did, it's like, eh, how big of a deal is what he did? Really? Not that big of a deal. That's, that's, that's what McTiernan wants us to think. And I think he's mostly successful with that. Now mm-hmm. to further ground this, uh, McTiernan casts, and we'll talk about his casting explicitly, but casts and creates a, a plethora of what we'll call regular folk to be constantly assessing Thomas Crown's likability slash approachability. Right, so like, mm-hmm. think of like the character of Bobby McKinley in the museum, right? Who right. Thomas Crown like has a like a conversation with him. He's like, "You don't want to see the Monet? Do you know what that's worth, sir?" Like that whole conversation. Yeah. And I think the point of it is to say they're very nice. Yeah. Well, he's a nice guy, and also regular people feel comfortable with him. He's, yeah, he puts in time, yeah. or and has things that feel like authentic. Right. Wants. He he yeah. shows up with a with a croissant and eats it sitting on a bench with a guy who feels like I can come up and talk to Mr. Crown. He's a normal guy, mm-hmm. you know, He's harmless. and they feel like pals, you know, mm-hmm. even if they, there is a sense of their difference in walk of life. But I think they're, when a regular guy feels at home with a rich guy in a movie, you think, Oh, this rich guy is not so bad. You know, like that's the net value of that. And I think that was very mm-hmm. intentional. Um, there's a reason why, for instance, he's a, an older, you know, sort of grizzled type dude who may not really actually work in a museum. You know, because uh, mm-hmm. I think it makes him feel more approachable. So also that line we talked about how Thomas Crown is only stealing something that's valuable to rich people. That line is put in the right. mouth of Dennis Leary, uh, who's clearly right. only there to represent yeah. blue collar guy. You know, that's his job. Demolition man's Dennis <laughs> Leary. <laughs> you love that movie so much. Yeah. I love it. No, but like, no, isn't right. that his job? And like, he he has that great sequence it's, with Renee Rousseau. Where he's like, "You like pizza? You want some pizza?" And she gives him this little smirk, like, "You're not gonna invite me to pizza, right?" That's right. That's and right. And he's like, "Oh, uh, you're not a pizza person, huh?" Okay. Yeah. I don't want to digress no, too far because you're doing so fucking well. But there's something that, uh, there's a larger thing I want to talk about a little bit about. Like, do you know how? Like, you know how 
uh, John McTiernan has this, like he really, he brought essentially what Die Hard is, is a French new wave action movie. Yes. Right. Yes. And you can make an argument. For I that. see it. Um, sure. And he loves, he, that's why he hired Jan de Bont. Like he, there's a lot of pressure on the aesthetics of European style cinema of the time, particularly the sixties and seventies. Eh, some, maybe some fifties, but like, he really wanted to push the agenda of like, we want, I want to talk about like, when you're talking about authenticity, you're talking about regular folk, right? Uh, when you think of Jean-Luc Dard and all this nonsense, like from French New yeah, Wave. Yeah, that's right. That is also the context of what they want. And literally this movie chooses to do that's that. right. All of the art is poor people. Yes, art, it is. Uh, and it's usually like made by poor people at the time. Uh, like his, that big sequence at the end where he's got the bowler hat, he's literally the spinning image of Magritte's That's painting. right, on purpose, uh, of course. Yeah, The Son of Man, you know, the one with the apple. The one that's in the movie. Familiar. He literally walks by it several yeah, times. Yeah, he literally walks yeah. by it and he's like, oh, that's me. And that whole point is that, like, the one thing that you want to see is hidden, right? And it's hidden by something that was placed there uh by god basically the apple you know like it's so you can't see the face of person you can't see what it is so it's also it's it's about the elusiveness of humanity that painting i think but it's also like about like who who people are deep down but also gives you this feeling that like i can see everything and i still don't know um which is a perfect metaphor that's what thomas yeah Exactly. That's so I do think that there is a lot like I'm glad you picked it up on it. It's especially important, I think, to John McTiernan's art that he does have these kinds of references, because what they do is they're shorthand for him to understand exactly what he's doing. That's uh, what a great addition to understand the character of Thomas. Yeah, like I I think that's what. Well, it's it's the exact opposite way you would approach this movie if you're interested in telling the story of a rich person. Exactly. If you are you're hung up on the details right. and you're like he uses this cool stuff and he's got a batarang, you if you're really which is not to say that that's bad at all. I, I I'm think just saying that a great contrast to this is some of the HBO shows of the time or like a few years later that are very glam focused like Entourage or even Sex in the City. Where, uh, like, it's about showing, like, she's wearing Manolo Blahniks. You know, they're in, they're really in, yeah, they're exactly. really in the Museum of Modern Art. Look at the status right. that this item gives Because us. that's a thing that was really present in the late 90s, early 2000s in cinema. You know, and McTiernan it's didn't want to do American that. American pastime. Yeah, he didn't want to do that. And he really worked hard, both in his influences and in his casting and everything else, to eradicate that. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Just to further what you said here, um, the there's a lot of visual stuff that we're going to talk about in a little bit, but uh, even the robbery sequence itself is a bunch of blue-collar guys, and we just sort of see it through only the lens of blue-collar guys, through, like, delivery truck people, mm-hmm. and then, like, the guy who runs the security camera, and then the four guys who break in are sort of, like, you know, workmen criminals and stuff. And the way we see Thomas Crown is largely walking amongst those people. You know, like that's the first 10 minutes of the movie. It's sort of him walking through, you know, everyday life. Walk. He doesn't like take a chauffeur to get to this spot. He gets out of that car and walks 
to the art yeah. museum. It's like Henry Henry V. Is that yeah? Is that it? Is the Henry the, the I play? Forget which Shakespeare it is? Yeah, yeah. Where it's like I'm gonna go. Let me walk among amongst the people. The people. It might and be. I understand. I haven't read that play in a long time, so I don't remember. Or like uh, Sullivan's Travels. Yeah, yeah. You know, is another one example. Yeah. You know, it's like it's a very a, a trope where some king of some kind says, "I would like to be understand what it means to be real." Absolutely, and I I think that I think Thomas Crown obviously gets a kind of pleasure from being anonymous. As a rich guy, I think that's that's mm-hmm. also what's being said there. But like, as a director, it's very, like just this is simple lizard brain stuff. But when you see yeah. a character walking among all the rest of the people who are of a certain class or a certain t- personality type, you start to think they're either a contrast or an assimilation. And I think in Thomas Crown's case, it's an assimilation. You know, he seems like yeah. he can blend in with these people. Um, which, by the way, also telegraphs yeah. the ending, a thing we're going to talk about a yeah. little bit. Um, That's Pierce Brosnan for you. Absolutely, yeah, 100%, right? Uh, so now let's talk a little bit about casting, the casting decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, I, can, I, I can't tell you that I know for sure the mechanics of how these decisions get made, but I can tell you what they mean. Uh, as, and I think that it's safe to say a director basically has to give a green light to a casting decision. Uh, you know, even if the studio has sort of an override. So forgive me if, uh, if I can't say exactly who decided what, but we're going to assume that McTiernan had yes or no power over some of these choices. Mm -hmm. Um, and that they actually come from him because they seem consistent with his aesthetic. So I think I'm I'm choosing Mm -hmm. to believe that. Um, so Pierce Mm -hmm. Brosnan, obviously there is no better person to play Thomas crown in 1999 than Pierce Brosnan. Like, who else could you get? Yeah, it, it's he's perfect. He's James Bond. Yeah, and also it's kind of his movie, so it, it, that's not a decision that John McTiernan gets to make. Um, but even if he did, he wouldn't choose anybody else. At least someone's at someone knows what's up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone's a... very aware of who Pierce Brosnan is, and it's probably Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> to be honest. Well, yeah. My understanding is that he was kind of driving this, so I I assume that he is yeah. attached to the project and therefore gets a yay or nay on on the big decisions. Um, but even if McTiernan had started this from the ground up, Pierce Brosnan's still the perfect person for this role. You know? So <laughs> yeah. that's a, just a smart decision. A plus for recognizing that. Now, Rene Rousseau, uh, I think it's fair to say is a very surprising choice for this role. Interesting. Um, yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to okay. go into some reasons why I, you, there will be, there will always be the possibility of pushing back. And saying, but she's a, an attractive, famous actress. And I'm going to say, that's absolutely mm-hmm. true. That's true. But I, mean, I want yeah. us to think. But caveat, understand. I want us to think about who she really is. Okay, so first of mm-hmm. all, she's age appropriate for Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. That already, very surprising decision. Because um, she does not have to be. She could easily be young woman in her 30s right. who's just a hotshot. Like any other movie you've James ever Bond. seen. James Bond. Yeah. Right. Uh and the fact, or any other movie. <laughs> any, I mean, how many movies have you seen where they're the same age? That like doesn't really happen in movies, right? It's an older guy mm-hmm. and a younger woman. That's mm-hmm. you know the dumb yeah. thing about movies, and mm-hmm. uh, unless it's like you know intentionally counteracting that, this movie's doing neither of those things. This movie is actually bringing with it the same problems that a person her age, which is early forties, would have uh, into the narrative, right? So because she's mm-hmm. age appropriate. Um, her calculus is very different, right? She's not some young, I guess, 
some young up and coming person who's being like swept up by the the majesty oh, of Thomas yeah. Crown. Right. She she's over. She it. already yeah. knows. She sees him for who he is. Right. She's not even Anna Kendrick with George Clooney on Up in the mm. Air. Not even that. Right. She's yeah. uh, <laughs> a person who's middle aged and has built a life for herself. And yeah. that life has meant having to sacrifice companionship. And now into her life comes the promise of everything she ever wanted as in a companion. But she's also worldly wise enough to know Thomas Crown is trouble. You know, it's right. Yeah. And for people who haven't rewatched it <laughs> in the seconds that it took you to click on this, um, the main conflict between the two of them seems to stem from the idea of, is this, authentic? is this for real? Are you, is, is there some real? other agenda? Yeah. Are, is, is your stealing is shit is the fact that I'm like a insurance cop, you know, or whatever she is like, is this going to get in the way of us being able to actually enjoy this thing that we right. share, which is our, you know, like romantic entanglement. I mean, a, a very uh, simplified way of saying it, is gamble. it me or the painting that he wants? You know? Yeah, exactly. And it cuts both ways because is it me or the case right, that you want? Exactly. You know, like so they kind of have to sniff each other out and that's kind that's of what the movie is. The main function of Act Three and why I think you're right about all these choices about like Rene Russo and updating uh updating the character a bit so that it's like a little bit more like I'm over it. I, I mean um, it's a great choice. Very helpful. It's a great choice. It makes the problems more adult, less immature, and therefore less reverent of the wealth. Mm -hmm. The wealth kind of gets pushed aside for the like for the question of, yeah, but are you real? You know, that's mm -hmm. the real question she's asking. Now, the other point I want to make about Rene Rousseau is this is a way out of type role for her. Way out of type. Mm -hmm. She has been playing girl next door, cop wife, or tomboyish love interest her entire career up to this point. In like the eighties, by the eighties, and, and in the nineties, so. in the Line of Fire is and, in, the well, yeah, in the nineties. She plays a Secret Service agent, Lethal Weapon Three. She's an internal mm -hmm. affairs investigator. She's a cop's wife in many movies. Now, those of you who are like big Russo files, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> will point out. But wait a minute, she was a model before she was uh, a movie star. That is correct. Here is a summary of her modeling career from Vogue that was written in twenty sixteen in an interview with her that I thought was very germane. Uh, in the 1970s, Russo stood for sexiness that was both accessible and aspirational. She could vamp it up with the best of them, posing for Francesco Scavulo in Decadent Furs or swathed in Versace for Richard Avedon. Avedon? I don't know. But Russo wasn't your average pinup. The poise she brought to her images made her the first choice for editorial shoots that demanded models with tenacity. Whether she was bound for the boardroom in a power suit or posing on a beach with Tony Spinelli. So I <laughs> just saw the name dropping. It's so dumb. Yeah. It's like, okay. That's a nonsense. Well, I, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. the words that stand out is, you know, this is not your typical, uh, sexy object of desire. This is a person who we hope we could be. We feel we, she's accessible. We feel like we know her. We feel like we right. could be her. Yeah. Uh, which is to say, right. She's not Angelina Jolie's character in every movie. Right. She's not Tiffany. Correct. She's not the correct. Yeah, that's right. So suddenly in this movie, Thomas Crown Affair, uh, McTiernan kind of has her playing everything that she isn't in movies up to this point. She's like a jet-setting art expert, uh, who yes is an investigator, <laughs> but really you know seems to be in in the art world for money and for 
you know, passion and for, you know, all the reasons that are not what she's been playing up to this point. Um, so now you may say, Abe, or, or listening objector, uh, but isn't this a merging of all her identities, Adam? Isn't this the perfect merger of all the things mm-hmm. she's been? And I'm going to offer you an alternative read. I think that Russo was cast because she feels out of her element in this role. I think that's the choice that's being made here. She's intentionally out of her element uh, because it makes her more vulnerable and outmatched by Thomas Crown in in the affair. I mean, yeah. And that that is not a thing the movie is shy about pointing out. It points it out all the time. Uh, it makes her... But, uh, but that... I'm ready. The thing. The, uh, the, the, the wheatgrass sunglasses uh-huh. scene with the cops... Is that not a reversal of that exact trip? Well, though? I'm because so glad you said like that. Because it's like saying she is relatable. She's so out of touch. She had a party last night or something, which is unapproachable, but she still got problems like the rest of us, well, right? Well, then they go in and do the backstory investigation on her. I'm so sorry for what must have been a hell cycle that came rolling through my soundscape. Anyway, uh, the the next scene, or maybe the same scene where we get the wheatgrass thing, like the green soup that she drinks every day. Uh, they they give yeah, us yeah. back like backstory exposition, and they're careful to describe her as actually a girl from the Midwest, right? That's that's yeah. the that's who she really is. Her dad's from Ohio. That's who she really is, and she's like become this art person. But in her core, she's a Midwestern girl. In her core, she's a yeah. She is the how Russo was. That's correct. Like, they want us to make mm-hmm. this association, and I think it's for the unconscious part of us that thinks. Yes, she's an art world person, but she's not one of these inaccessible art weirdos. She's a person we know, we can relate to it, and we know that she's vulnerable in this world because Thomas Crown is not that guy, right? Yeah, that's the other thing is that you get the feeling that Thomas Crown is old older money. money so yeah. she's already she's she's definitely got a it ups the stakes on the absolutely fear of the main conflict because she's like ah, but I mean he, he could just be one. Yet another one of these pieces of shit who's just into the myth of themselves. It could just be another narcissist. You know, he could just be another one. And we know what those guys are like. We've always known what those guys are like. But I would say, again, McTiernan understood the movie he's making because her vulnerability is the fulcrum on which the entire story pivots. Right? Like, it, it, it's all yeah. based on does she believe him or not. And the fact mm-hmm. that she falls for him actually makes him more likable because we trust her right like yeah and we don't see any reason why we should that's right this if this woman can love him a woman we feel like we know and can trust then we can love him and trust him so like mctiernan's doing like i think really smart empathy math here what if in act three they just had a sequence where it's just like cuts to flashback of tom and thomas crown doing all this malicious <laughs> shit to her and it's just like yeah exactly <laughs> just cackling like evil pierce just mustache grows pierce yeah. you can just you could see, see it, it. He, he he's famous for his cackling <laughs> he does have like a funny laugh when he plays like a comedy side character he does have kind of a chuffing thing yeah. this that makes me laugh because he always plays up his own ass narcissist he does That's always what he plays but i have to say even as james bond Pierce Brosnan was always kind of winking at us, 
you know, like he's never seemed. Yeah, I mean, it's comedy version. Well, James Bond's kind of always comedy version. He's never seemed remote. I'm thinking Miss Doubtfire. Yeah, that's true. That's there what I'm go. thinking of. Yeah, yeah, he is the asshole in that movie. Yeah. That's true. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it's like that's why it's it's winking at the same time because it's like, yeah, I'm playing a role. Mm-hmm. I'm being an idiot. Mm-hmm. I'm being a fool. Yeah, Pierce Brosnan yeah. has always been very likable. Uh, which is funny because he's literally a portrait of everything that everybody envies and hates in this world, and yet he's very yeah, likable. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, so mm, that's, that's acting. I baby. mean, <laughs> it's also that effervescent thing that makes a person unique. That's you know, like the pitches. Yeah, but like I couldn't make Thomas Hardy that. Like, I no matter what I did, I couldn't with the camera make Thomas Hardy into that. You know what? Well, t- well, I'll tell you to believe in yourself, <laughs> but yeah, continue. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate the kindness there. <laughs> yeah. um, just one last note on the casting. Um, there's really not that many super rich people in this movie. Um, they and and when they are there, they're often made very ridiculous, like the art museum curator who has the gigantic glasses, um, or they're old, you know. So yeah. like McTiernan is constantly placing sort of what you might call New York faces in this movie. You know, just everywhere. There's like the museum staff, the guys doing the deliveries, you know. Uh, And I think intentionally, like there's a lot of little tiny speaking parts that Thomas Crown sort of like, you know, has a good relationship with. Right. He walks into his office. There's like six speaking roles in there and they're all everyman. And it's just to prove. He does fuck over a few technical everyman, which is the criminals. He does. That's true. Yes. But I guess it's it's that '90s kind of some sentimentality of like, yeah, but they were but they were robbers, anyway. exactly. But really, what do we know we about it? It's totally. more that they're just foreign, totally. <laughs> you know. But you know, they are ro- robbers for hire, so I guess that you know, if there is anyone in this movie, All, I mean, also I think he's sort of taken our Eastern European prejudice against us here, right? Yeah, uh, that's exactly which is a what thing that you know movies have been doing forever. Uh, yeah. So we, I think we made this point. At James Bond, hundred percent. I think I think I made this point. So the last thing I want to talk about, and I don't need to spend forever on this, but I want to talk about how McTiernan is uh, intentionally telegraphing the end of this film as much as he can without giving it away, for mm. the purpose mm. of I think I mean number one just because it's artistic storytelling. But I think number two, because again, it's about relatability and sort of undermining our prejudices against Thomas Crown and sort of vindicating him in the end. And by the way, the ending is quite good. Um, the last act of this movie, I think, is quite good. I really enjoy it. Um, it might be a little silly, but it's the, it's the 90s, baby. Come on. Um, Dude, I, I have my hand on my cheek and I'm okay. smiling. <laughs> like, I yeah, love okay, it. great. Tell me so, about it. Tell the me about first the way that McTiernan does that, opening credits. Um, a thing that we never really see, mm-hmm. but uh, in the opening credits, we have a constant switching of letters, right? Uh, right. Over black with uh, sort of this moving drape looking thing at the bottom and top of the frame. And uh, he it's, it's cross-faded with Thomas Crown talking about, could a woman trust me? Right? To fade fucking <laughs> right, Dunaway. To fade Dunaway, who's, by <laughs> the way, a nod to the original, because she was the... Uh, she was mm-hmm. the Rene Rousseau in the original. She yes, was the Rousseau. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the switching of letters, of course, tells us what's going to happen at the end. He's going to switch the paintings, right? Like, uh, and, and all, I mean, <laughs> right? And the crossfading tells us what is the actual meaning of it. Uh, it's a proof for the woman that is going to question whether she can trust him. So, you know, 
it's John McTiernan, baby. <laughs> he's he's, he's yeah. doing it. Yeah, he's, he's got to yeah. do something. He's like, ah, it doesn't have enough yeah. shit going it's, on. Uh, it's not the subtlest, but it's definitely, in hindsight, like a very clear telegraph. Um, yeah, it's right. I also yeah. think the vignetting that he does is interesting because he could be just cutting. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you thought. I yeah. read that as uh, it has a kind of, it sort of suggests a theatricality. Yeah, proscenium yeah. kind of like presentation. Right, it's almost like a yeah. monologue being done on a stage. Uh, meaning, and I think mm-hmm. that's to both undermine what he's saying, and also to uh, sort of heighten the question that's being presented. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this is the theme, right? This is like Hamlet's monologue here, right? And and also, <laughs> right, yeah, it, was just... uh, it also I think foreshadows the performance that he will do in, during the heist. Right at the end, two households both alike. <laughs> it's in very exactly in fair exactly. Uh, it is totally that. Um, but I, again, his his the way he restores the painting, the way he switches it back, is very performative. Right, like there's so many ways that a person yeah. could plan to do that that wouldn't involve a, an elaborate staged proof that's very theatrical. Uh, but that's not Thomas Crown, baby. He wants to do it in plain sight, and I think that. McTiernan sort of telegraphing that just in the format of his introduction. Um, and I think that's pretty right. cool. Um, I didn't go that's into right. an excessive amount of details here because I didn't want this episode to be like five hours. It's not that flashy. It kind of lets you yeah. sit again. Yeah. But it's uh, it's because this is his love song. It's like him just going like, I want to talk about the art world because that's what like the French. But it's not about. lore. You know, like, like it's not buried in the background. It's no. definitely foregrounded. It's just that the meaning of it is is just out of reach. And I and that's my favorite way that a director can do this kind of work right. is it's there if you want to see it. You Hints know? of it. And like, yeah, if you, I'm not going to make it a big deal. Yeah, I, I have that tendency because I like it so much that I'll just go straight for it. Like it's, a dog it's hard not to. Retreat. Yeah. But like he's so good at like keeping his hand at like, yeah, yeah, I know that the whole point is that I'm doing these shots that have the composition of a French New Wave film on top of a like a museum. So now you're immediately thinking of all these specific films like Correct. Antonioni yeah. and stylistic films. Well, you are. Like but yeah, like, sure. I am, but like he's like, who gives a shit? And that's the right, that's yeah. the right thought. You know, that's the that's. I'm gonna make a movie for people. I'm not gonna. Make he a knows movie them for enough me. to make um, them to incorporate them, but also to make them disposable. Uh, which is great. Which is another nod to the dispelling of narcissism. Agreed. He's a very non-narcissistic director because he knows all that shit. It engages him, but he refuses to let it seep into his movie. It's the same argument that I made that that's why Die Hard is a French New Wave film. You, you know, should just like, do that. What? what you need you to do that director about? piece. You just need to do that as a director piece so that everybody can hear it. Yeah, I think maybe. it'd be really good. Um, anyway, yeah. just to finish up this point here. So I want to talk a little bit about his camera moves because it wouldn't be director piece if we didn't talk about camera moves. Uh, the number of pan reveals in this movie are, is is uncountable. It's, <laughs> it's uncountable. So <laughs> It's almost entirely. It's almost entirely. It's pan, so pan, many pan and reveals. Uh, even like sometimes the camera moves. Sometimes it's just literally panning over suddenly in a way that could be like an Arrested Development joke. Um, yeah. So oftentimes, what that just to re- define what a pan reveal is for the audience. So what we're talking about is <laughs> that the camera is sort of dollying one direction, right? Like we're moving one way. Let's say it's left. We're sort of dollying left, and then suddenly. 
we will pan right to a thing we didn't expect to see. Uh, like, like oh. and then over here, this, you know, um, it's a thing he does all the time. And it's a thing that your lizard brain instantly understands. Oh, yeah. So we're going to have surprise reveals in this movie. Um, it's urgency. Yeah. Die Hard does it. It's yeah. Like, look at this look at thing. That. Right. It's you very know, sudden and dramatic. I think Spielberg also is very good at it, but in a less dramatic way. I was going to say Spielberg does it. He does it. Yeah. He does it more of just motivations for. And now now the scene is going to be taken over by this person. Yeah. He also you know, he is a little bit more artful about letting a subject lead us to a pan reveal. Like to give you an example, yeah, if you want to, if anybody wants to just take a moment and go back to Raiders of the Lost Ark and watch the chase with the natives, which is one of my favorite things to use in film school. Um, there's a bunch of rep, like repeated shots, but one of them that's one of my favorite is Indiana Jones runs through the woods, then past an old statue. And then we cut to the same exact frame with the natives right behind him. That's right. And as they pass the statue, bats fly out of its mouth. And this very like, yeah, chase. It's so good. Uh, Spielberg's really yeah, good at that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's very mm-hmm. fun and schmaltzy. Anyway, so uh, the purpose of incorporating this into the movie, aside from McTiernan just liking it, because he does, is again to sort of, in in the language of the grammar of the camera, to telegraph the ending. You know, that again, there's going to be a sudden reveal. Mm-hmm. He's going to restore this painting and take this other one you didn't expect. Um, yeah, as an item, that's what the pan reveal exactly. exists on is. And exactly right. Yeah. Um, I also just kind of wanted to say, McTiernan is unique in that he doesn't use motion to create a constant rhythm like so many filmmakers do. I disagree. What's that? I hundred percent really. Disagree. I think in this movie, I don't. I didn't feel that as much. Well, maybe not less less in this movie, but there's literally I could pull up on YouTube a quote of him saying sympathetic dolly motions and trying. But, in, to but not in this movie, right? I, I just I, I just mean in this I, movie. I, I don't. It's just okay, a sentiment. I just mean in okay, this movie. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think of this movie. I, I'd have to watch it again with. He's a little more because... careful to. I think his moves are a little more purposeful than the moves of, say, Christopher Nolan or Zack Snyder. Um, they are like on a yes, meter. they they are yeah. creating the rhythm of the film with their motion, and I don't think McTiernan right. is not doing that. McTiernan and it's usually so fucking slow. <laughs> it, it is a little <laughs> slow. I agree. McTiernan is using motion more in a storytelling way. It's it's for reveals for the most part. Um, sometimes it's by what I might call like lateral reframes. Uh, like there's an ex- a great, ex- great question. So like an example of that is, uh, he gets out of the car in the first scene, right? He gets out of the car and he's running to the mm-hmm. museum and we're dollying around him. And oh, then we get all the way across him when whoop, he almost gets hit by a truck. And, uh, yeah. it's sort of reframing so that we see the truck coming, which we wouldn't have otherwise. Um, you right, know, or right. another example is like we watch a reflection of Pierce Brosnan in a glass in like a glass wall and we dolly with him. And then as we cross, as we, as we turn the corner, we meet two guys who are like, who do you think you are? You know, the guy who owns the building. Right, right. It's almost it's almost like he's preemptively Correct. telling you, all right, here's some context for the second Correct. frame or the second composition, so you are ahead of them. It's like dramatic right. irony as a uh, right. visual And motif. often what happens here is that it's sort of allowing us to see a thing that mattered in the background that the foreground was obscuring. In fact, a lot of times when we see mm-hmm. Renee Rousseau and doing her cop stuff, especially when we first meet her, that's what happens. 
is like we see the detectives and then we kind of dolly over and oh then that woman's over here what's her deal right right and again i would say that's sort of a subtle way of telegraphing the crime that thomas crown is doing right Right. It's it's a form of Correct. distraction to be like, and look at this other thing, which won't play into the anything until later. Correct. Let's move now, on. I, so I don't mean to yeah. say that McTiernan doesn't use motion for the sake of getting us into a rhythm generally. But mm-hmm. in this movie, it seemed very purposeful. Um, yeah. So Right. It seemed like a theme. Yeah, it's thematically driven, which, which I really personally yeah. appreciate. I like that in film. Um, he also uses lateral dolly moves, meaning side to side dolly moves, to like catch somebody mid motion, which is like Spielberg's favorite thing in the world to do. Uh, it's right. sort of like the camera was looking at one thing, and then the protagonist crosses into frame and sort of grabs the point of view of the camera. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of almost like we were gonna see something important in this thing, but then the protagonist came and changed it. Um, and it's—I don't mean to say mm-hmm. that that means it's distracting. It just sort of says that. Uh, the moves themselves are motivated, meaning that something in frame causes the motion of it, but they're also thematically Mm. driven and sort of telegraph the meaning of the story. Uh, Right. That telescoping from writing to visual is like, that's, there's nothing else. That's why I like movies. That's what a directing is. When they nail that shit, you go, oh, that's And that's what directing is. And again, I think that Right. You know, I think McTiernan trying to translate the ending the way that he does in the film grammar is another way of him constantly sort of vindicating his main character. Although I would say his main character is mm-hmm. actually uh, Rene Rousseau, but sort of vindicating the person who's being examined yeah. here, which is Thomas Crown. I think telegraphing yeah. the end is his way of softening the blow of. Uh, of the accusations that we're leveling at him as a film, as like, you know, the film watchers, uh, because I think he mm-hmm. understood Thomas crown has to be a person we like. He has to be. Cause if he isn't a person we right. like, I mean, he is a bit of a sociopath, 100%. not just because he's like huge in business, but like at the end, why did he do that? Well, to he, Renee well, right. Russo? he made totally. her think that he left and didn't believe her that she loved him. And it was all about him. And he made her think that, it was all about the painting I mean, and the case. He, and then when he was planning to go with her all along anyway, that's some red flag he's shit. He's making the argument. I mean, it's a movie, but he's making the argument, right. I think, like, I had to know you were interested in me, not it. just the painting. Which, like, is they, like, which is like, bitch, you prove it to well, me. I think then. that's what they were both <laughs> saying, right? Like, that's that was his scheme is like, right. I can prove it to both of us by doing this. It's just convenient that one of the mechanization machinations causes Rene Russo to cry, where the other well, but counter, exist. but counterpoint, uh, counter. I mean, you're mm-hmm. right about that, but counterpoint, he's the only one that took a legal risk. She never had to take a legal risk. He prevented her from having to do that. He's also the only. That's one true too. Crime, hundred percent, necessitates hundred percent. A crime risk, is what so. brought the question of the movie on, but but if it's about. True. And we're fine. If it's about answering yeah, that question, we're, we're though. Audiences are fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's just get that out, air that out. We're not saying we're audience fine with crimes. Fine That's with not crimes. the issue. No, I mean, of course, as we already yeah. said, like, I, I, like I, I think the broad strokes here is McTiernan is trying to soften the blow of Thomas Crown uh, and his decisions enough yes. that we are rooting for them to be together and like it. We're like, oh, that's nice. And I did. I mean, I like the ending of this movie. Oh, that's you know? nice. Um, 
I, you know, it, how do you end it? You know, you sh- it should a- end you on did. a happy note. It's yeah. about love. And I, I liked know? her sort of yelp. At, like, I, even the way that the yelp happens at the end, you where she screams and, yeah. the, and the flight attendant comes in like, oh no, what's this? And then like gives us this like, oh. And then she goes like, that's yeah. what love looks like. Two rich people on a plane. <laughs> well, Fucking. <laughs> no, I mean, that. look, I'm going to be the first to save it. Say it, that flight attendant, straight up pervert. Oh, she's a pervert. And I'm here. You no know, doubt. I'm here for it. Yeah, she, no she's into this shit. She's just watching. Cuts it cuts to Thomas Crown Affair credits. She's still watching. <laughs> and if only we could all yeah, be her these in weird that exhi- <laughs> These weird exhibitionists. This is not me reading well, into it. Well, you're not right, what though. I do. This is just a character. Because he has, he has somebody <laughs> yeah. else in his row. Like, there's other people immediately next to them. Oh, yeah. Uh, just thinking about that in the COVID era, like, my God. You know, <laughs> what a nightmare. My God. Anyway, I, mean, yeah. uh, I just want to brief notes about Thomas Crown Affair's impact, and I'll, that'll be, and I'll wrap us out here. <laughs> so, it wasn't like a massive hit or anything, but... I like sort of like this revisit of it really to me highlights the talent and creativity that John McTiernan almost invisibly brings to this film. Um, because yeah. again, a subtler filmmaker like, like for instance, Steven Soderbergh uh, probably would have made a far less approachable film. You know, it would have been a lot more schmaltzy and clever yeah. and I don't think that would have made it good, you know? And it's also like the house that Die Hard right. built, you know, right. Like- this is, he he wants he he is interested in stories that are just like yeah like, but let's like let's move let's have someone knock on the door I think Something that he happened, got you know? through he, like he sort of moved past the premise here of like rich guy does rich caper and investigator goes after him into okay but sure mm-hmm. but there are two people and they fall in love what's that like you know like in the given their mm-hmm. situation like what would that love be like and I think he does right. meaningfully explore that. Um, I, I, and I think the emotions of that are really well rendered and it's because his sensibility made it possible for us to get that close to them, um, instead of to admire them <laughs> like the, the cast members of Entourage or whatever, um, a, a show I keep yeah, lampooning yeah. because it's, it's not the same tone obviously, but because that's such a celebrity uh, worship show. It's rich. Right. It's rich. Exactly. Propaganda. Exactly. <laughs> like, so um, just a couple other notes, like McTiernan's authenticity, a thing you identified earlier. Uh, it, it also shined through in the making of in a couple fun ways. One is he wanted to shoot the art heist stuff on location. <laughs> yeah. It's the museum. <laughs> that's no, uh, that's, that's what he wanted to do. Did, yeah. Did he, he asked him. Uh, he asked him, and the museum's like, "No, wow. we're not going to let you do that." So he had to oh, build okay. it. Yeah, yeah. No museum's going to be like, "Yeah, well, yeah." This art, y- you are justified in looking at all these masters. I just think of it's history. You, I think John it's McTunin, so are fascinating that a guy who, first of all, wants to work in a mid a mid level a, a mid range lens, wants to work in a space he can't control. You know, like I, that just says something about who he is. I think he likes yeah. working in real spaces, uh, and uh, you know, I, I think that's really Absolutely. cool. Absolutely, I think he thinks it's more. He, he, I think he thinks it's a part of the filmmaking process. You hear yeah. him talk, and he's like, "Yeah, when you are limited by your solutions, that's when good well, stuff." Well, that's happening. an artificial you limit know? because he had the money and resources to build it, which he did. Uh, but right. he wanted to make it. But harder. that's a trick. 
make artificial I agree. limits for yourself. Uh, I, I think I you're right. I, I think that's a perfect summary of what he's trying to do here. Um, I also think that he wants to make his films as personal as he can. Um, and just like some ad, yeah. like some ways he did that. Uh, some of the real estate in this was his, like his own house and stuff. Like he has a ranch. He had a ranch and he oh, used it. Really? Um, there was a vehicle yeah. in this movie that he loaned to the film. Um, and I think just... So rich, yeah, rich people. Yeah, shit. rich people shit, but also it doesn't have to be his stuff. You know, like, uh, I think it's about, That's I think true. that makes it about emotionally connecting to it, um, for yeah. better or for worse. And I would also argue, like, <laughs> like for instance, you and I both remember the film that I worked on in 2010, uh, where mm-hmm. I was working with a director, I was an AD, and the director of that film uh oh, yes. asked me many times to use my car in the film which we did his car never made an appearance just to give you a contrast uh you know so i think that's right yeah it's a little different one's asking for can you make this easier on me one another is like i don't have to do that's this but exactly I'm right choice because that's... i want to get involved in this yeah. picture it's that it's makes personal it personal to me exactly yeah, like you're saying. um and i also i think the fact that he's more interested in the love story than the heist is very telling like, he's not really that interested yeah, that's, in the, the investigation of it all, you know? That's the one thing that I'm like, that's... I think that's all really it means when we say that this is his kind of, like, artistic swan song, is that he's doing that for the first a time. A little bit, yeah. I think that that's... In a way, this is his first, like, a little less transparent film in that regard, because the very setup for the premise of what his intrigue is for the story comes from a place where it's not like, what is more interesting? Right. A love story or a heist? Mo- I, I, you know, 90% of people heist. are going to probably say, well, a heist, probably. And he knew this. He made Die Hard. He made Predator. He's All of his films kind of come with this pedigree of, I'm going to choose the most interesting visual adventure. And in this one, he's like, no, I want to choose a more humble film and something that's more true to just person-to-person politics and that is slightly different for john mctiernan i mean he always like you said throughout his pedigree kind of wanted to talk about some of this stuff included scenes and even die hard where it's like well yeah what's going on with holly you know but at the same time uh you know he clearly in this film is not going the heist route. that's right and and uh which means he's subverting i think the expectations that everybody not associated with the film would have of him right and and mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. i respect that he probably oh of course he should that. i think a great filmmaker should get a kick out of that um and like just mm-hmm. my last point about his authenticity this movie's still fun um it's fun it is it's fun. a fun movie it is, and it didn't have yeah. to be which is surprising because Act Two, I think we talked about, is pretty just much. sex. It's just pretty much just sex. It's just let's here's let's see a honeymoon, and it's like rich people shit. But it's not like it's just they're hanging out on beaches and fucking you know like that's doesn't seem like that would capture your attention for longer than ten. Especially minutes, right? considering uh, in the movie, it's not finds very way. bombastic. Like, it's not like, and then they're in Dubai. Here's a cool shot of the Dubai Towers, you know, like. Right, it's not 50 no, shades of it's, gray it's, it's It willfully obscures the bombast, even of their island getaway. It's like, you know, you get a landscape mm-hmm. shot, and then you're, you know, at this little bungalow that. We're yeah, here. We proved yeah. it. We don't need to right. show the house. I think, that, yeah. I think it tells you that McTiernan is excellent with tone. 
Like he really does understand tone of a film, he even is. if it's not the tone that we expect from him. Um, he's really good at it. Uh, and that's what makes things like this movie stand up alongside the great, you know, high five of predator. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the, yeah. the every man right Bruce Willis phone call. You know, uh, to Carl Winslow and Die Hard. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, he just knows how to hit those mm-hmm. moments. He's so good mm-hmm. at it. Uh, he is a great filmmaker. Yeah. It's a shame that uh, he fizzled out so soon. like to see more from him, but that's not how it always goes. I think that's kind of, I think that's fine way for that's directors true, to go. That's true, if it's not me. You, <laughs> yeah. you have a few, you try, to, you try to get some more money if you can, if you're a success, and then you uh, go to jail because you, uh, you, you're, you're spending out pace well, to your Well, he mate. went to jail because he was uh, literally spying on his producer with like a, yeah. That's true. Pretty gnarly. But the motivation is always oh, money, Oh, yeah, yeah, of dude. course. It's, it's always, always money. money. Absolutely. <laughs> and so I'm just saying. Absolutely. I'm just saying. Money over everything. <laughs> <laughs> no. Money or death. Quote. You know, it's not as applicable. Uh, yeah, dude. Yeah, and I think that that's why McTarran and I mean, it's there's two things happening: what he wants and him as an artist. You know, absolutely. There's he really is good about examining, and I've I've started to think about this a lot as I've been getting older. Uh, when you examine a movie or examine what a movie could be, yeah, like if you're not if you're not the director. It come, there's this there's this fight that happens in every brain of every person, every reader, every, every or every viewer, or every uh, collaborator, which is how good is this movie at doing what it's trying to do versus what I want it to do. And he's so very good at making sure that those things align. Yeah, that's that's he the finds key. a reason that he's engaged with the source material in a way that we all can be engaged. And so tonally. Uh, his his the topics he chooses where you know we are saying that this is a digression from that in fact in some regards it's a bold face like denial of the fact that he did this throughout his career um not in a bad way not in him like distastefully saying i don't i hate it uh, i hate it die hard you know he's not doing any of that shit he's just saying look what your expectations of this movie I'm going to do something different that I like, but you're, I'm still going to make it in a way that you will find a reason to. I'm going to make it, it and that is accessible the, to you. Yeah. And that is uh, the mark to me of a true artist. Certainly, it's the mark of a person who understands the business he's in. You know? It's true. It could be a business front thing, but I think it's deeper I than think that. So, I, I think, think it is it, too. It's hard to do that on purpose. I, I, it's hard. Yeah. He does it I think, effortlessly. Whereas, you know, George Lucas is created an accidental masterpiece and found his way into a star war and all of the reasons that star wars is good is still his he didn't understand these machinations like T- mctiernan he does. didn't understand them long uh, enough to repeat it at least that's exactly you know? right um, and the proof is in the execution yeah i mean although you want to hear something terrible uh i've heard just a casual survey like eight or nine friends i've or like younger people that I've met who just recently watched Star Wars, take a wild guess what their favorite Star Wars movie is when they didn't grow up with them. I've heard this like 10 times. Take a wild guess. Of the original of or like Star Wars, including... All Star Wars films. Oh. Revenge of the Sith. No, sir. It is Phantom Menace. <laughs> I hear that all no. the time. What? Yep. It's like the exact wrong I one. I know. Why? I know. I don't know. Because it's, got, it's fun. It's, it's got cartoon. Racing? It's a fun cartoon. It's got pod racing. Yeah, pod racing is... And Sebulba's in that one. 
I forgot that Sebulba's in Sebulba. Phantom Menace. That, mean, that, 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 that means it's top two. That means it's top two. Sebulba. I thought he was in Revenge. <laughs> I would do an impression right now if it wasn't horrible. <laughs> Uh, every impression would be also it has Watto that racist character like yeah who also speaks like 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 he sounds yeah, exactly. like a fucking Watto yeah. uh, I know that that sounds racist it probably is but I just calls him he like calls it like he sees I don't know Phantom Menace is a nightmare uh, we're gonna have to cover that someday on DPT I think can you imagine fucking, can you imagine can you imagine what if I made a treatise on those fucking robots that all make jokes those little matchstick men robots that all make stupid ass jokes. It would be deafening by you, the sound <laughs> of the silence of no one caring. Nah, no, you would love that shit. Don't tell me you wouldn't love I it. I would. I would be cackling. Yeah, you'd love it. I'd be cackling like Pierce Brosnan God, over I'm gonna here. watch him. I'm gonna watch Phantom Menace again. Let's I'm do it. I'm gonna watch dude. it again. Let's. Fu- <laughs> let's fucking. I'm gonna do- watch it. God. Let's do- Let's do those. What were they called? Star Wars. The Sebulba movies. <laughs> let's do the Sebulba. <laughs> Sebulba, what a horrible! Kid. I love Sebulba. I love him so he, like, much. Has, I love his little he feet. Has, yeah, he has like feet arms. Right, he has like feet no, arms. He's, he, he 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 walks around with his hands. Right, he walks on his he's hands. He's got big long but hands. But they like, and he's got a little T Rex feet. But it does. But he it doesn't make sense. Like he like it's not like oh, yeah. it's not like a, it's opposite T Rex. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's opposite uh, T Rex. Opposite T Rex. And guess what he does? He's he he's great at pod racing. He's so good at it. <laughs> He's got a big and he's engine. A jerk. Big pod race. He's got a big engine yeah. and he's a jerk. <laughs> he's not very nice. God, I love He's him. not very nice. Yeah, I was kind of rooting for him. Sneaky. Sneaky rooting for him. Uh, I'm going to take a BuzzFeed quiz right now and hope I get <laughs> Sebulba. You know what I mean? Which opposite T-Rex are you? Hopefully it's Sebulba. <laughs> Which Star Wars character are you? Sebulba. And then I just nod, close my eyes, and fall asleep. My God, asleep. we were talking about Thomas and... Crown Affair and like, mature relationships. <laughs> and then here we are. Pod racing. It's almost like it's almost like we shouldn't talk about all the bullshit that we talk it's about. It's almost like, like that. that we find interesting. Yeah. It's like we should just give them what we want, which is right. We failed to McTiernan. I don't even know if they want this. What am I talking about? We failed about? to McTiernan in this know. episode. We failed to McTiernan. Maybe people are like, turn this shit off immediately. They they. Start I don't know. I, I mean, if you listened all the way to the end and you enjoyed the pod race portion of it, uh, please <laughs> digress. Please tweet us uh, hashtag Sabalba forever. Uh, so that we know forever. you, we know you loved hearing yes. about pod racing, and also potentially our episode Tiny, one episode. Make a tiny feet fist <laughs> and pump it in the air with your tiny legs. Sebulba <laughs> forever. God, I need to get that. that I need great. to hear that voice again. Thank you. Yeah, I, I um, I when I watched this movie in the theater, I really liked it. Uh, and I know, like, I walked out and everyone was like, eh, and I was kind of surprised by that. I still kind of really like right. this movie. It's uh um, sometimes they get you yeah, when I liked they want to have fun and it's like ah the, like I don't know anytime anytime a filmmaker is like here's here's fun and games like to me anybody on the planet that could be absolutely your shit yeah you know because it's all it is is it's one way it's just saying this is fun and if you're into it fucking awesome, I also can I know? just I know you're gonna think this is insane and you're gonna think I have bad taste and I'm just gonna say it I no. like. I like the song that's like the theme of this movie, except for I don't like the singing in it, but I do like the, the clapping and the piano. Is... I like it. I like the music. Yeah, I love that shit. Clap, clap. I love it. I like that. I think that feels like score. Yeah. Uh, I posted it on Twitter 
there is a song which, if you look at my Twitter at Aid the Mighty, <laughs> nice plug. Uh, there's a I should have a post where you can listen to. There is a score to specifically the there's a heist sequence that I swear to God is like the most. It's like he just downloaded it from a you know like what is the na- name of the guy Kevin Mc whatever McCloud the guy who does like I just churn out these apple loops it does <laughs> feel know, a little like apple the, loopy for just, sure just like put it on an archive online and someone can download it royalty free it literally is like a rock song that sounds like that and it's like it's I find it kind of cringeworthy. Uh, not a lot is cringe to me, but that shit when I hear it, I go like, "Ooh, this is bad." I, there's this is parts, a boomer saying, "Yeah." <laughs> there's parts of the soundtrack that are bad for sure. Yeah, that's one yeah, of yeah, them. Yeah, that's yeah, all. yeah, yeah, for sure. But I just I uh, the theme is cool. You can love I the, like theme. the theme, it's and I like the dumb. I like the dumb. Everybody in bowler hats and briefcases ending. That's very mm-hmm. dumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's like that's where we are no longer in anything resembling our world at all. Uh, but I like it. I like that dumb shit. That's my yeah, pod race. It's got an artistic vibe, so it's like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like there's some, there's it's like a painting. <laughs> <laughs> He's using paintings to, me, to get art away. power. To me, Abe, that art to me that <laughs> Abe is pod racing. That's pod racing to me. That is pod <laughs> racing, pod and racing. that's an episode. Yeah, it really Thank is. you so much for hanging out with yeah. us. Uh, oh, and if you want to come over to my Twitter at the Real Gans, you'll mostly see me trolling Abe and maybe Dave. <laughs> that's mostly what you'll see. Nice plug. Man. Thank you. Uh, I love you. I love you. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!